0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the history and tensions of international education. My guest is Paul Tark, an associate professor at Western University. Paul sees certain tensions as inherent in the very idea of international education. The practical, instrumental,
1: and the idealist have always been kind of connected for international education. There's this kind of dream of opening up, but there's always these practical kinds of conditions, financial, that set sort of constraints around how international education and these more idealist visions manifest in the world.
0: As universities around the world embrace internationalism, in an era of limited state funding, some wonder whether those idealist intentions have been clouded by hopes of increased revenue generation. Given the government, you know,
1: reduced um, commitments to funding, so how do we get this money? Wow, international students in these uh, brick economies, they have, there's a huge pool of them, let's bring them in.
0: Paul Tark, welcome to Fresh Air. Hi Will, it's uh Nice to be talking to you this morning. so tell me a little bit about international education like when did this idea of international education first appear?
1: So maybe this is the most difficult <laughs> question to answer in a sense um, again, it depends what we what we mean by international education and and part of uh, our conversation is going to maybe talk about some of the interconnected dimensions of of international education and I'm not a historian, but I'll, I'll say that um you know, the idea that as citizens or people or individuals that were connected up to a larger world, I mean, I think that's a very old idea. Uh, Diogenes in, I guess, 300 BC was reported to have said that he was a citizen of the world. Uh, Comenius in the 17th century um, is often cited as one of the earlier advocates for cosmopolitanism and international education. So. From that perspective, it's a it's a very old idea Um, in some sense to be educated is to be worldly and ideas and stories were, I think, shared across borders and groups, um, probably for thousands of years. So um, again, it it is a historically contingent term, one that, that takes meaning and shape and manifestations based on the on the larger conditions.
0: What about our, our present moment? I mean, you know, I, I hear international education all the time. I mean, it's even in the, the name of the comparative and international education society, which is, you know, a relatively recent phenomenon, especially when you're thinking about Comenius, for instance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I would say that, that right now international education very much is very salient. It's, you could say it's on the rise probably the latest, this latest uh, historical moment where international education is thriving begins in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union col- collapses and capital is finally global. There's notions of a new world order. More domains are less afraid of using words like world citizen and global citizen. And the academic discourses begin to sort of take up again the idea of cosmopolitanism from the mid-90s forward. And of course, the internet and you know the, the increased telecommunications creates the conditions for the, uh, the intensification of exchanges that cross political borders. And so I would say that we're experiencing from... From the 90s and, and in, uh, accelerating into the 21st century, a moment where international education has changed a little bit from its 20th century or from the from sort of how it was um, manifest in the late 19th century in sort of up into the point of what we might call uh, the, the recent phase of globalization. And so I can explain a lot more about that.
0: So, yeah, what does what does it look like or what did it look like in the, the 19th and 20th century?
1: So... If you think about international education for most of the 20th century, it is, I mean, I, and I think all of these terms are relational, right? Like, uh, so international education, we can think of it as, as something that it, that exists and is um, sort of essentialized in that way. And I, I don't think that's productive, but we can sort of say, what does it do? What is it trying to do? And to think international education, I think you need to think about national schooling and the project of... Um, nation building and and how education was seen as sovereign to the nation that it was about creating little Canadians or, or little French men and women and that 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 was a big notion and so from that starting point international education was moving sort of beyond and supplementing that kind of framing so that this notion that education should be oriented to international understanding. It shouldn't be moved beyond uh, nationalism, parochialisms, beyond uh, local understandings, that ideas and knowledge doesn't, those things cross and are enhanced by crossing political borders. And so in some ways, international education was a little bit in opposition to sort of the the normal way of uh, thinking about, say, schooling. For, you know, and we'll f- maybe focus on the 20th century here. So, for example, after the First World War, when people were sort of thinking about the devastation and destruction caused by that war, some of the ideas circulating like peace, peace education, solidarity, internationalism, these things then take on greater traction. And so for its time, the League of Nations was created in the 1920s, and that was a very radical expression of internationalism and still at that time education wasn't included as one of the components of that so partly because it was seen as too contentious now if you shift to the next moment so if we think of the 1920s as a moment again where internationalism and international education activities um were more pronounced the next kind of uh movement or hill if you like uh, would be um, in the post-World War II decades and with the creation of the United Nations and at that point UNESCO comes into being which does officially include the domain of education and in this period though international education is usually discussed in nation-state domains as something that supplements national education. Uh, the creators and supporters of international education were typically progressives and internationalists um, who believed that you know education um, was to serve more than just national interests, that it was about, uh, for, for most of the 20th century, it was a liberal, humanist, uh, progressive, child-centered kind of approach to education that it could make a, a less violent, more egalitarian world. and. However, uh, in these national domains that were, this internationalist dream was not really pronounced as it is today. So for example, the object that I look at uh, in my doctoral research was the International Baccalaureate. So that, you know, the idea of having a common curriculum that would be recognized by different countries and be focused on international understanding uh, is, was not a new idea. It was circulating back, you know, in the 20s when the League of Nations uh, was formed. However, uh, the conditions in the post-World War II decades with more families, expatriate families living in, in Europe and colonial elsewheres, there was this need for an education that could allow students to go back to their home country universities. So the IB really was formed as a practical, there was a practical need to sort of have this kind of passport to uh, home country universities. Up until that point, uh, families had to either send their children back in grade 11 or grade 10 back to the, the home country to prepare for the, the university. Um, so for example, in the International School of Geneva, which was the epicenter of the creation of the IB, they had divided. they. In grade eleven, they divided all the students into just to start preparing for their national exams. So the the French, the Swiss, the British all sort of were pushed into the different groups to start preparing for those examinations. So the IB came to life as a kind of answer to this problem. Like, we're in this incredibly uh, cosmopolitan kind of environment in this school, pronouncing these values about international understanding, and yet we're dividing ourselves into these little groups. And so that was sort of, if you think about it, that was sort of um, the conditions that spawned the, the, the International Baccalaureate. But if you look at sort of the policy discourse around the international of IB in that early period, the internationalism, international understanding, is typically muted, and you know the IB is about education of the whole person. It's about high academic standards, and when, and when the IB um, needed to find financial sustainability after this period of funding from donors in the nineteen sixties, when it when it was taken up in in the United States, it really wasn't taken up for its the international component, but for this high academic standards in a context, a nation at risk, where the s- schools were so reportedly failing and this was a a new kind of academic program that would that would seek to change that. And so that's to say that, uh, you know, this, this sort of the period prior to where we are today, internationalism, I guess in part because of the Cold War and the bipolarity, capitalism, communism, that the term, these terms weren't slung around the way they are today. In some sense, that, that kind of break in the 90s and then it's sort of slowly changing to this point where now the international is not something that, you know, families of IB or other international education programs can sort of leave to the side. It actually becomes a kind of value added of the program where the international experience and international components, second languages, these all become value added uh, things that students can put on their resumes to apply for for university and for future career prospects. And so in that way, under globalization, it's it's this change where international education becomes an expedient.
0: So, I mean, before we go into this, um, the 1990s moment and and trying to think about the IB and international education more generally uh, in the current moment... Back in the you know in the 1960s when when UNESCO is formed and the international baccalaureate kind of takes off and as you said solves this problem of I, I guess it would be embassy workers or foreign aid workers who are stationed uh, around the world and want to make sure their children get a certain quality of education I want to know you know what sort of people actually did go I mean was this a you know, a particular class of people that were able to access international education?
1: Well, for sure. I mean, this was for, um, as you say, diplomats, uh, business f- uh, families, sort of doing bi- international business. And these were fairly elite schools serving these families. And so that's sort of the, I mean, International education has been for elites. If you look back before this, it was sons and daughters of ro- royal families that were doing these exchange programs in international schools in the 19th century. I mean, internationalism itself is was kind of... Uh, you know, it was about the European white nations forming a society of states. The first, the first non-white nation to join the society, international society of states, in the nineteen twenties was Japan, which probably, uncoincidentally, was was also an imperial nation. So, yes, I mean, these are the kind of the starting points and the foundation of of international education that continue. These tensions continue into the present, right? So, IB. Um, came to life at a moment of massification and democratisation of schools and yet um, in order to find financial sustainability it was largely used by uh, maybe not the super elite that didn't need a kind of uh, didn't need this kind of stamp of ib or whatever but you know the 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 next rung above, below that and so th- while the ideas were um, I think, genuine about an, uh, an education of the whole person and developing international understanding. This question of elitism and access was uh, an, what I call an originary tension of, of the IB. Um, I speak about three enduring tensions in my book, Global Dreams, Enduring Tensions, IB in a Changing World. And um, the, the, the third tension is one of, around representation. What? What do we mean by an international curriculum or, or, you know, which largely is a Western international curriculum? And then in terms of who has access to this. And then, you know, when the IB moves into state systems, all right, the, it sort of, it's it's maybe moving to a upper middle class then. So it's sort of a little bit more uh, accessible. But these now are, again, our families looking for that edge up getting into university as the IB is seen as this kind of gold standard and something to get to, to give a leg up and so the, this question of who has access is attention for IB it's something that they worry about because you know again it is the story that they, that they want to tell themselves is one around um, that IB is is this project for, for making a better world which they can't leave out part and so IB has entered for example inner city schools It's been taken up by uh, Ecuador and other countries trying to mainstream it in their systems. And, you know, the International Baccalaureate has tries to, you know, look beyond the delivery of its three programs to think more philanthropically about how it might be a uh, sort of transnational actor sort of you know, for international education in the world. But so for sure, this is a kind of tension. And and if you think about it, you know, the middle classes now are very much engaged in, in international education. And so the idea of for this starts in the 60s when higher education becomes massified, but it's not really until the 90s and 21st century that, you know, your neighbor and the person across the street is, is going to... Do this exchange somewhere, and uh, going to do international service learning or these kinds of trips in in various places. That that's opened up um, quite a bit.
0: So, would you say that the you know in the '90s and going forward to the the present moment, you know, has the the ball swung from this sort of idealist notion of internationalism and and the cosmopolitanism to this very sort of instrumentalist like you know, go do this international exchange program to get a leg up on my college application so I can get into a, a better university. I mean is that how, you know, this notion of value added and and instrumentalism is have we has the ball swung all the way into that court in the nineties and, and going forward?
1: Well, maybe we could say there's that's the trend, but I would say that the practical, instrumental, and the idealist have always been kind of connected for international education. There's this kind of dream of opening up, but there's always these practical kinds of conditions, financial, that set sort of constraints around how international education and these more idealist visions manifest in the world. So even in the 60s, under this kind of idealism, there were still these uh, practical and instrumental realities. So for example, the universities in Britain, U.S., France, Germany, uh, Switzerland—they had to agree that the examinations that the IB, um, that the sort of the control mechanism of the whole of the whole program, had the standards that would be up to par for, for their admissions, and so, in some respects the IB diploma curriculum, the grade 11, 12 curriculum is very content, it continues to be very content heavy as a kind of college prep. So, I mean, these are founding kinds of of tensions, right? So, oh yeah, we want an education of the whole person, but now we've got the, these content subjects that not, aren't necessarily transdisciplinary, right? And then when the IB tries to think, okay, we got to improve on this, whether the schools, so we're going to offer a new course on peace and conflict studies, or we're going to, Uh, create an option where schools can create a local site-based program that sort of take a more idealist take-up of do the schools take advantage of that or adopt that? No, they want the higher-level chemistry, mathematics, etc. So, you know, this is a lot bigger than the IB and the IB um, policy. But I would say that these practical instrumental realities have always been a big part of in international education and another good example are the the uh, Ford Foundation exchanges between scholars that where academics would go and meet with other academics across in different countries and you know to promote mutual understanding cooperation i mean under the cold war the larger conditions of the cold war and winning the hearts and minds of the uh, uh, unaligned countries i mean this was a politically a strategy right which shaped The ways in which these kinds of interactions and exchanges took place, albeit people connected, right? So I think it's important to understand how the kind of neoliberal economic globalization, and that's kind of a code word, but, you know, this whole marketization, market logics around organizing social spheres like education, you know, putting the onus on the individual through education to lift themselves up. This whole kind of mechanism, hype competition, of course, has had an effect on international education. And so for sure, holding on to the idealism, whether it's in IB or whether it's in higher education, where, you know, at one level, there's this practical instrumental desire to find new funding, given the government, you know, reduced um, commitments to funding. So how do we get this money? Wow international students in these uh, brick economies they have there's a, a huge pool of them let's bring them in now it doesn't necessarily mean that that is takes over because the managers the, the leaders of higher ed- education institutions may well hold on to this notion of what a higher education t- is to do for example high-quality education education should be relevant to the world so the policy statements around bringing in international students of course are coached in this language of world class university you know uh bringing in the, the best minds you know you know not not having a kind of parochial uh, approach to faculty and students so i think these things are are kind of come together. And so then when you do bring the international students in, then what happens? Oh, these students need greater supports. We need to increase our language support center. We need to think about, you know, their acculturation and, and outside of uh, these sort of extracurriculars and, and finding ways of integrating into, into the larger community. And these things become an issue that people on the ground are working with. And so intercultural learning maybe you know if you're cynical then this is kind of a reaction and the intercultural learning is more of a byproduct of this driver of revenue generation I tend to think that you know these things have become more tightly integrated and that um, indeed you know if you look at the top-down drivers here they're largely financial and pragmatic so and that's that you know that's that's beyond international education as well as a higher education as, as a whole we could say or education International students are now coming into uh, Ontario secondary schools and paying tuition to to these boards, which are publicly funded and have been pushing back against sort of uh, market kinds of mechanisms for us. So th- these things are getting complicated. You know, some of my students and have have done some nice critiques of how internationalization of higher education it is largely uh, revenue about revenue generation. Sometimes they use the words profits, which probably isn't the right word because there aren't yet shareholders and stuff. It's not that the money's going elsewhere. It's, it's, it stays within the university. Uh, and they make some insightful critiques. However, I say to them, when I get it, a moment, telling the university that internationalization is about revenue generation to the sort of neoliberal managers and in some ways are more radical or progressive than some of the left-leaning academics sort of nostalgically looking to the old days which were complicated for different reasons i mean the university was never a bastion of of openness uh, towards people of color and uh, different you know lower social classes etc so you know of course it's about revenue generation because you know these neoliberal brands it's about re- revenue generation because this is how we can give our offer our world class education of such a high quality and make a difference in the world and we want our students to be global citizens who are out there you know making a difference coming up with entrepreneurial solutions to help those in need having these exchanges oh and by the way who will hopefully be committed to, Future uh, donor alumni to our university, so so you can see how the 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 economic and the practical are entangled within this kind of idealism. And so for me, um, what we really need to do is show how the particular pragmatic, financial, perhaps neoliberal inflected kinds of constraints or drivers are doing particular things or constraining these more idealist goals like intercultural understanding and that's the kind of analysis that will really open this up
0: have you found where the practical is constraining some of these idealistic um, tendencies
1: well you know personally uh you know anecdotally we we find it all the time and and you look in the literature and you can see it in various places for example you know if intercultural competence is about learning how to sell your product in different places. I mean, these can lead to very essential notions of other cultures. I mean, the danger here, again, is kind of this re-inscribing a kind of neo-colonial or dependency relation right and or th- you know thinking that you understand the other with these very thin and superficial kinds of uh, desires around connecting for these kinds of pragmatic or instrumental reasons and i mean and there's lots of stories about things like um, one of my colleagues shares a nice story about how these students that she interviewed you know we're going down to a a country in central america and putting on this is like pre-med so in their application to, to get into a med school they were going down and taking video of themselves in these sort of uh, white suits sort of hovering over some brown bodies in some makeshift clinic somewhere and so i mean you know we can see these images and there's even spoofs of you know these various kinds of international exchanges and how it changed my life and one of these on the red onion shows this you know, white girl blonde hair with these little black boys around her and sort of saying, this experience was phenomenal. It's got the sort of stone, decaying stone wall in the background. So the aesthetic is very recognizable, right? And it's like, this experience was so phenomenal. It's going to change my Facebook profile forever, you know? And so, you know, we, we, know, um, we know some of these dangers, um, but we need serious academic research that sort of illustrates with nuance and detail how some of these kind of branding, this brand approaches and rhetoric actually is not sustainable in the long term because we're not offering this necessarily, this high quality product that's open to people from everywhere or that is really um, engaging interculturalism and intercultural learning in substantive uh, kinds of ways. But, you know, that's that goes beyond the anecdotal and our personal situations. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that in trying to say that, you know, it's not that we always I mean, people choose their avenues for the work that we do and a kind of taking a critical approach. But that's just one of the things we need to do is find strategic openings in this kind of branding. I use the term progressive or radical branding here because it, it very much is um, kind of discourse and approach that is co-opting. And it's this does not say no to critical thinking or to social justice it's incorporating it yeah we need we need to be operationalizing applying social justice right we're for social justice the but again it's sort of how that gets reframed or transmuted into this kind of sphere where certain, there are certain unrepresentables or certain things can't be said or thought that sort of outside the discourse and are difficult to to enter in i mean you know this is this is a difficult we're, we live in these difficult times and it's, you know, in international education and, and beyond.
0: Do you think the international education has been impacted by, you know, the, what we could call the Trump era or, or a lot of the nationalistic right-wing parties that we see kind of emerging and gaining strength in the U.S., but also in many countries in Europe? I mean, has this had a noticeable impact on international education?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, I think um, if you talk to people who to collect some of the numbers on international students coming in to various countries across time, you'll see that you know I'm I'm making a kind of claim that international education has come of age in this this latest form. It begins in the '90s, accelerates in the twenty first century. There, you know, there are dips along the way. Like I think nine eleven or the the sort of war on terror and the reaction to that produced a kind of dip in the U. S. context of attracting students. Trump certainly, from what I've heard, that there the numbers are flowing elsewhere from the United States a little bit with since Trump came in, and I think we'll continue to see that again. Just like the ideas of internationalism and cosmopolitanism are not new, neither neither are the kind of isolationist, protectionist views. So they gain traction at particular moments because the economy tanks or a particular uh, government comes into power. And I mean, these things are all linked up, right? So on the one hand, you know, Trump and Brexit will affect the numbers of students coming in and and higher in- education institutions mm-hmm. are, are quite worried about this.
0: But couldn't that be a strategic opening, right? Like the as revenue generation from international students is maybe in retreat in some universities, that could be the moment to say, well, look, there's all these other values of, you know, international education rather than only revenue generation.
1: Okay, so yeah, the, the sort of committed supporters and advocates of, of international education will continue their work and find different kind of avenues to to promote that so and and i think also there is a reaction to trump i mean this is the second part that i was was going to bring up in that like more than ever we need international education my students are coming in and i teach a little course in teacher education around um international education and you know they're, they're quite adamant about you know that that you know we need to learn about the world and they're you know pushing back against this kind of um, idea of building walls and as a solution for anything so it, it also I mean and we see that we see people um, individuals in the United States and 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 elsewhere uh, becoming more political politicized so, you know so it's it's you know sort of push and pull no one wants to have to go through Trump in order to, for for some of these more positive reactions but that, that's partly
0: what's in play, I think. So, Paul Tark, thanks so much for joining Fresh Ed. It was a pleasure to talk today. Okay, well, thanks so much. Paul Tark researches and writes about international education. He is an associate professor at Western University. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. FreshEd's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zoom. Aggie Hu is FreshEd's social media coordinator, and original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.